In today's extra episode, we start off with a very brief interview. Sarah Bottrell of AbilityNet is talking to Eleanor Southwood. She's chair of RNIB and she's also chairing an expert panel on day one of TechShare Pro about carrots and sticks. And they're talking about the importance of a focus on end user experience when it comes to informing how RNIB do things and also the importance of people with a vision impairment being able to get to grips with emerging tech. Gone are the days where an institution like RNIB can claim to speak for anybody in particular without having some really robust evidence that, that you know, of, of how you, you know, how you've got to that position, you know. So the voice and experiences of people with lived experience has to be the, the difference because then it's really clear that you're focusing the limited resource you have in you know, in the right places, but also it's a source of your legitimacy for challenging the rest of the world, you know, changing people's perceptions and changing the everyday experiences of when you go out and about and you can't see. RNIB as an entity gets its legitimacy from the voices and, or, of blind and partially sighted people, so that's what we amplify. It's an expectation of mine as chair that every um, team within RNIB will be working with blind and partially sighted people as part of their everyday. So we've moved beyond doing surveys and doing one-off pieces of work. We want real-time experiential information about how people are experiencing the world and whether and to what extent what we are doing is helping them, helping to make that easier. Working with companies at as great a scale as we can get, so ideally globally but certainly nationally, to build in features at the start that will help make devices more usable so you know one of the conversations at the moment is around white goods for example so alexa uh, will you know in a couple of years time you'll be able to buy you know washing machines and stuff that you can control and we are role to make sure that blind and partially sighted people don't miss out and are not left behind in the development of that if it's got right for people you know um who are blind or partially sighted is pretty much going to be good for everyone. Part of what RNIB is here to do is to equip people with the confidence to use that tech, you know, the um, the sense that it is of use to them rather than a thing to be feared. Um, so the confidence and skills, you know, to be able to navigate that because with, you know, with advances in tech comes an increased risk of digital exclusion as well. It becomes more and more important that you can navigate the world we live in rather than, you know, seeing... Um, the world of digital connection is somehow separate. Next up in the queue, it's my talk with Marlin Rigg. It's a really interesting interview. Marlin is Head of Authority for Inclusive Design for ICT at the Norwegian government. And she's on the expert panel that Eleanor is chairing at TechShare Pro. And we're discussing how the Norwegian government actually enforce website and app accessibility legislation. I know it's unbelievable. Now, by the way, in here, there's a mention of SAS. That's not what you might think. It's the Norwegian airline. So over to me and Marlene. I am here with Marlene. I'm not, I've probably said your name wrong there. So apologies. I'll ask you to introduce yourself properly in a second. But I'm here with Marlene, who is from the Norwegian Authority for Universal Design. They are involved in reviewing, monitoring and issuing fines to non-compliant websites. Now, Marlene, just um, say your name properly and the name of your department, please. 
Yes. Well, uh, my name is Marlin uh, Rigg. Uh, I'm the head of the Norwegian Authority for the Universal Design of ICT. Uh, we are an inspectorate body. We uh, supervise both websites, apps, and also self-serving machines, um, automats. Um, and our duty is to oversee that both uh, all private and all public entities comply with the regulation. So, and if necessary, sanction non-compliance, as you mentioned. Fantastic. Yeah. So this is a very different setup, guys, to how what we have here in the UK. People who have listened to the podcasts before or have read things that I've written online know that, that many people in the UK have long called for proactive enforcement of the legislation to make sure that the digital world is accessible and inclusive for people with disabilities. But up till now, the UK government haven't done anything about it. Now, that's changed slightly because there has been some EU legislation that um, relates to public sector websites, etc. that has been brought into UK uh, legislation as well. And so the government have started to do something around enforcement and monitoring of public sector websites, but that's very, very new over here. Now over there, it's been, it's well established that the government actually does something about it. Now we'll get onto that in a moment, but can you just give us a little bit of history as to when it became law in Norway Mm. to make sure that the digital world was inclusive and how early on did the Norwegian government decide that it was their job to actually do something to enforce it? Mm. Yeah, uh, I can. Well, uh, in 2008, we got the Anti-Discrimination and Accessibility Act, Mm -hmm. but there weren't really in place any enforcement as such. Uh, But from 2013, uh, the authority was established to oversee uh, the compliance of the regulation. So from 2014, uh, because we had some time to, uh, you know, implement this, uh, but from 2014, this uh, regulation applied for all new solutions. And now, big date for us coming up, 1st of January 2021, uh, this regulation will uh, apply to absolutely all uh, ICT solutions. That means all apps and all websites and all self-serving machines, regardless of when they were uh, developed or when they were bought. That is so, so until, fantastic. Yeah. So until now, it's only been the new ones to, you know, minimize the cost mm-hmm. for businesses, because, of course, it's very expensive to buy a new or a new a new solution if you hadn't planned for it. But the, the aim has been to that when you have when you buy a new website for instance or do a new development when you do that anyway then you have to make it universally designed but from 2021 you actually will have to do it anyway <laughs> either you mend your old one or you buy a new one or... yeah that's a hard deadline that is so brilliant yeah. i mean here in the uk um the law has been there for a very long time but the government hasn't given any support to disabled individuals, for example, who have problems with a particular company with their website Mm. or their mobile app or their public kiosk or whatever. And 
the, that disabled individual had to take that company to court themselves. Mm. And there have been some cases where, because there's also a law here in the UK that if your uh, award, so if you win and you get given an award, um, you know, uh, the other company are fined and they have to pay that to you. If that award is less than the than your legal expenses, then you have to pay your legal expenses as well. And there was a case recently where a lady won and her award was £32,000, but her legal fees were 33000 So she actually, so she had to pay them and she actually ended up worse off by £1,000, even though she won the case. So it's a really harsh climate over here. So it's so brilliant. And it's also worth noting over there that you have a body that, um, a government body that receives complaints from the public and then starts the legal proceedings on their behalf. Is that right? Well, it's it's more of um, like a pre-court, uh, if you could say. It's a, it's a decision in its own, uh, which... Uh, like arbitration the, or a, an ombudsman, it, yeah. Like more of an ombudsman, yeah. yes. And and um, where, where you get a decision where the entity has to comply with their decision, but they can, of course, appeal it, and then it goes into the court systems. That is so, so brilliant. But the individual, the disabled person, isn't left on their own to fight the battle. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> so, yeah, so let's mm. talk about what you guys do on a daily basis then. So your responsibility is to proactively monitor and report on websites and issue fines if they miss the deadline for compliance. So on a practical level, how do you go about that monitoring? And are you still working on the process? Are you going to try and make it more efficient or more scalable going forward? Yeah, well, uh, you know, when we started up in 2013, there weren't really that many, uh, should I say, other public entities to look to in regards of methods and mm-hmm. how to do this. So our first task was to develop methods uh, for testing websites uh, in the first place. Um, and now we are d- uh, developing a method for apps because that w- we will also need <laughs> to test uh, yeah. have a method for testing apps. Uh, and what we... S- we usually say we work in four ways. We we do uh, firstly we do a lot of what we call area surveillance. This means gathering information about which sectors, for instance, has the bigger problems. Mm-hmm. For instance, how does it look in the banking sector? Do they have particular uh, high degree of barriers, for instance, for um, uh, for disabled people or yep. in their services? And then we also gather information from user groups, of course, which uh, problems are perceived the biggest for the different user groups. And all this information we use to do like what we call risk-based assessment of where do we put our efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our efforts could be guidance for a sector or for, uh, for different kind of uh, professionals like web designers or communica- people that work with communications, for instance. Uh, and then it can also be to do inspections. And the inspection is a formal procedure where you uh, take one entity 
for instance, one bank mm -hmm. and inspect their website and their solution, web solution, the whole web solution for the, the, the internet bank. <laughs> yeah. And that's um, with uh, reviewing the, the code, looking at key user journeys and that sort of thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. we, we review them up to the requirements in the WCAG standard, mm -hmm. the WCAG 2.0. Uh, and if we find any um, problems <laughs> there, uh, we issue a report. And the report is made public. It's published on our websites. Uh, and the first thing that will happen is that the entity will then get a deadline that they have to correct the mistakes yep. that we've found. Is that so six months or what's the... Normally it's three months. Good. <laughs> uh, that would be like the normal sometimes it could be longer be, because it's something technically uh, very challenging to fix for instance mm -hmm. or in some cases if they are already in a development uh, program that says for instance that they have a deadline five months right. to maybe issue a new website for instance we might give them a longer deadline but the, the normal deadline is 12 weeks mm -hmm. um, and if they do not meet that deadline uh, they will get uh, a formal uh, order of rectification. That first deadline of 12 weeks is kind of a, a way to like give them a chance to fix it. Mm -hmm. So, but the order of rectification will give them normally four weeks uh, or something, three or four weeks to, to fix whatever is left. Normally that will, there will be some uh, outstanding points that they haven't closed. Uh, and if they do not meet that deadline, there will be daily fines. Mm -hmm. And the daily fine will then just like run <laughs> until all errors are corrected. And these fines aren't insignificant. Um, there's a brilliant example of your national airline who yeah. missed the deadline. And then they had a, was it 15,000 euros a day? Yes. Fine. Yeah. And that really yes. concentrated their minds and they managed to sort everything out in, was it 10 days? Yes. So if you do the sums, that would be about quarter of a million euros a, a month, was it? I worked it out. I can't remember now, but it was, you know, it was significant. And so that really yeah. focused their minds. So that, I mean, that's the kind of teeth that legislation Need. So which that brings me to my next question, which is obviously there's there's so many benefits to this approach. When you make the reports public, then there is some brand uh, repercussions because, you know, that's a public document and organizations are shown not to be compliant. Then you've got the the deadline where, you know, it could really concentrate people's attention and prioritize the you know, compliance, and then you've got these fines as well. So have you seen um, a change in the overall level of accessibility across the, you know, Norwegian digital, uh, you know, the, the landscape before mm. and after this activity came in? Well, um Firstly, I, had, I would just want to mention that because uh, the Norwegian regulation has such a broad scope, it is uh, 
almost, I think, uh, almost 80,000 websites that has to comply. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first uh, monitoring or the first survey we did was in 2014, uh, where we monitored uh, all sectors. Uh, and the overall compliance was about 51% of was the requirements. Was that to AA? Uh, yeah, it's a AA, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's about 51%. Uh, and also, uh, of course, sectors varied a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, public sector uh, websites were, in general, a bit better than others. Yeah. Whilst banking sector and media then at that time uh, and transport <laughs> were particularly low uh, mm. compliance um, in 2014. Yep. Uh, then we did a new uh, survey last year, 2018, and the overall, um, the overall results for all sectors uh, were up then about 61%, mm -hmm. which of course is a rise. Uh, still, there are a lot of differences in the different sectors uh, and the different uh, types of website. Remember, amongst 80,000 website you will have uh, websites that cover a lot of uses like the SAS for instance and you will have a lot of websites that covers a smaller group uh, of people of course uh, yeah but what I can say is that for instance the banking sector was a very positive <laughs> outcome uh, from our point of view they had gone from being very low on compliance to being one of the sectors with higher compliance so they, they made a bigger improvement than the overall result, for instance. And that's, do you think, indicative of the fact that organisations across the sectors are sitting up and taking notice because it's being enforced? I'm sure that that rise, that 10% rise in compliance wasn't just the sites that you'd approached and given deadlines to. No. Uh, of course, there were many, many more yep. uh, because inspections, um, I, I could tell you a bit about that if you want to, but the inspections at the current time are very time consuming mm -hmm. for us to do because our method is quite uh, manual at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, we are now working very uh, hard on doing a digitization of our the authority itself like automate anything that we can automate yep. <laughs> and make digital processes for all that we can so that uh, we can scale as you mentioned in the beginning scale up our um, our uh, capabilities if, yeah. you, if you might say yeah <laughs> Uh, as much as possible um, so that is a big priority for us uh, going into 2020 and 2021 uh, but at the moment inspections are quite uh, manual resource demanding yeah. so yeah. we do not we have done 42 at the moment uh, these years 42 inspections mm -hmm. uh, but the surveys covers about 300 entities uh, picked from different sectors then. Yeah, so, I mean, I think this is one area where actually enforcing the law, no organisation knows if they're going to be the next one that's reviewed. So it makes everybody prioritise it more because yeah. just because of the activities that you're doing, I think it's really, really important. But yeah, scalability and perhaps the tools will become 
better with more AI involved because at the moment the automated checking tools provide mm. a lot of information that is um, superfluous. You know, it's difficult to, mm. you know, they don't know anything about JavaScript. They can't, you know, they don't know anything about the context of the elements and usability and that sort of thing. So to be able to say whether a website is perceivable, operable, understandable and robust will takes a lot of human input compared to what these checkers are uh, capable of at the moment. But yeah, so your future plans are to try and make it more efficient and to keep yeah. on reviewing and monitoring and enforcing the legislation. Um, well, I think the EU directive will be a positive influence on the market and the vendors and when it comes to tools for testing mm -hmm. uh, universal design because now that all European countries has to monitor every year and report every three years to the EU uh, this will uh, also spark I think more efforts from the vendors because here you, a lot of people will have to will need efficient testing tools so we are hopeful uh, when it comes to uh, more efficient tools coming also from the marketplace. Yeah, and I mean that, you know, the word Brexit, the nightmare that is Brexit springs to mind here. Um, because my last question was, have you got any uh, advice or, or recommendations for the UK government in this area? But obviously bearing in mind that we may or may not be embracing future EU legislation. But as far as the work that you do and how the UK government might learn from it, have you got any advice for them? Well, it's hard to give advice, I think, from one... Every country is different in how the whole setup is. Uh, what we have uh, found here has been useful for us is to kind of combine, try to combine at least, uh, the two efforts of guidance and making people understand why this is uh, important, why this also is good for the economy to make a universal design mm -hmm. design solution because you will reach more customers, you will reach more users from the public uh, mm -hmm. point of view. It will make your digitization efforts in, in society more efficient. Uh, but combine the guidance to the entities on why this is useful also for the entity to do with maybe more enforcement to make them also aware, also manage, manager level, uh, that this not to do this will also have some consequences. So maybe like a combin combination of different uh, approaches and takes on it is has proven useful for, for us at least. Yeah, and there's no reason why the model that you've got there couldn't be used in other countries. You know, it's it's something that could be used by all governments to make a difference and to shift the needle in how inclusive the digital landscape is for the citizens in that location. You know, here here in the UK, there's been very little improvement in digital inclusion over the last couple of decades. And this, well, as you've shown with the surveys uh, from 2014 and 2018 has had a marked impact and I'm sure as your efforts scale up and mm. your impact is increased we will see those mm. numbers move in the right direction still further. Brilliant. Yeah, 
I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for giving us your time and uh, good luck with the work going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It was very, very interesting. Thanks.